0: Hello and welcome. My name is Leva Bonavé, and this is episode 21 from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. Kelly Wilson from New Zealand is a wild horse tamer, a best selling author, and an award winning photographer, to name but a few of her accomplishments. She is also the only trainer in the world who has achieved top six finishes in the Extreme Mustang Makeover, the Kamanava Stallion Challenges, and the Australian Brumby Challenge. The Wilson Sisters, Kelly and our two sisters, Amanda and Vicky, are known in question circles for helping to tame wild Kamanova horses. And I have invited Kelly to ask her what we can learn about our domestic horses by working with and studying horses in the wild. So Kelly, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, I think, like I said, initially, it's, it's just great to be able to sit here up north in Norway and, and have a discussion with you about horses when you are in New Zealand.
1: Yeah, it's an awesome opportunity because obviously we haven't been able to travel for a while. Uh,
0: so it really opened up the world. Let me just start by saying something about how I found you. Because I had an interview with Chris Pollitt. Uh, he is uh, an Australian professor and we talked about the hoof mechanism. Yeah. And then he said, Kamanova horses. And I was like, Kamanova what? Because <laughs> I've never heard about them. And then when I started to Google Kamanova horses, uh, I found the Wilson sisters. Because uh, I've actually spent time with Chris Pollitt in Australia with the Rumbies. So, yeah, so that's how I found you. But um, but I, I only know what I've seen, like in videos. And so I looked at your timing and your horse work and I found it very interesting. But I, uh, I always like to start my podcasts with you know asking my guests to start off by telling me about their background and and their passion for horses so what's it like with you how did it all start
1: so we started riding before we could walk we grew up with horses and our parents weren't able to financially support us and buy uh, you know champion horses for us to compete with and so at the ages of 5 7 and 9 we mustered some wild Welsh ponies off the mountains and learned to tame them. And so they were our first show ponies and they went on to win champion uh, in the show ring and over jumps. And then from there, we became uh, quite a well-known family in New Zealand for showing and then show jumping, competing up to Grand Prix level. So my older sister, Vicky and Amanda, are both highly successful World Cup show jumpers. Uh, Vicky's also won the world championships of colt starting in America twice. And my little sister's competing in it this year, which is exciting. But it wasn't until 2012 that our journey with the wild horses in New Zealand began. And that came about because one of our clients purchased a pony off us called Watch Me Move, who was a Kaimanawa. And he had gone on to win the biggest Grand Prix in the Southern Hemisphere. And so we got invited down to the Kaimantua Ranges of New Zealand to see the wild herds. And when we were driving through, it was the first time we became aware of the plight of the wild horses in New Zealand and that every year or every two years they were being rounded up by the government and sent to slaughter. And we realised that if our family, who's quite well-known in the equestrian industry and has a lot of experience working with untamed horses wasn't aware of this plight then the general public wouldn't be either and so at that time the horses were available to rehome but there was just a really negative stereotype about them and their rehoming rates were really low and so we got 12 uh, 11 11 Kaimanawas from that first muster and filmed a documentary about us taming them and four of them were mature stallions the rest were mature mere. And they were the first mature stallions that had been tamed uh, and started under saddle, because prior to that, the stereotype was that these horses were, you know, unsafe to work with. And so within six weeks, Vicky was cantering one of the stallions back down the beach, and he was a 17-year-old straight out of the wild. Uh, and it really shattered that stereotype. And since then, we've created the stallion challenges, and now every single horse that comes out of the wild is saved. So it's been a massive decade and through it, we've had the opportunity to go to America and compete on Mustangs and compete in extreme Mustang makeover, which is a 100 day challenge. And then in 2015 spent time taming Brumbies for the Australian Brumbie challenge. And then in 2018 to 2020, I spent uh, you know six months living out in the mountains with wild horses and America, Australia, Canada, Portugal, and then back here in New Zealand. So it's just been like a massive sort of immersion into every aspect of wild horses, for me especially, because it really has
0: become my passion. So when you travel the world and you see all these different breeds of feral or wild horses, are they, like with people, we have different languages. Are there, you know, different languages within the horses or or is the language always the same?
1: So the I mean, from our experience, a wild horse is a wild horse, um, regardless of what country it comes from. And the differences in their tameability generally comes down to the management. So in New Zealand, they're mustered very ethically, it's actually quite uh, lovely to watch by helicopters, and it's like watching the world's best cutting horses or stockmen work in stock. So the coalwises come in very relaxed, often at a walk, and come into the muster yards. And then that day, they're stock trucked to our property. Uh, In Australia, they are stockpiled for anywhere from nine months to 18 months on a sanctuary. So the stallions you train are already gelded, and the mares have had their foals and they've been weaned. And then America, obviously, they're in the BLM yards. So they're in feedlots. And then in terms of wild horses, when you're you're not taming them, just interacting with them in the mountains and photographing them, which I was doing for a book, uh, the difference comes down to how habituated they are to people. So in New Zealand, my experiences with the Kaimanawas is that some bands can be friendly. They'll, you know, come over and investigate. I've had one or two sniff my camera and want to interact and hang out with me. And then in other zones where there's live firing and humans can't go, you're lucky if you can get 500 metres or a kilometre away from them and they're just little specks in the distance. And it's exactly the same in every country. In Australia, in the snowy mountains, they, you know, some bands can be quite friendly. And then in the desert, we couldn't get within a kilometre of some horses and the same in Canada. So I'm really fascinated to be able to see that kind of difference in how they respond to humans. Uh, One of the massive driving forces and a source of inspiration for us is to continually improve the welfare of the horse uh, and to promote better horsemanship and better interactions between humans and horses. And with the wild horses, I I mean, I love working with wild horses and then both wild and domestic horses at Liberty because you end up with a really honest conversation. They are much more honest. honest than a domesticated horse because domesticated horses are more desensitized and you can kind of get away with things but when you've got a wild horse uh, and you're working with it if you're making mistakes and your timing's not right and your body language isn't right then it becomes very obvious and um, it's been a massive learning journey in 2018 I had my biggest year. I tamed 26 wild horses in a a one-year period. And seeing a huge variety of ages and genders of horses was massive. And then obviously I learned just unprecedented amounts when I was in the mountains living out with the horses. And then I came back and was able to put it into practice last year in 2021 with I think 18 wild horses that I went through and worked with and then this year again with 12 and all of the training the focus always is on relaxation so I use a lot of uh, well initially uh, body language and now I can also feel the vibrational communications from the horses oh say a little bit more about that uh, so I stumbled across it by accident and then have studied a lot of PhD papers and um, through the Math Institute in America about how horses communicate using their magnetic energy fields particularly the heart field and it came about i had one mare last year and she was unlike any wild horse i'd ever worked with normally with a wild horse if you do something that makes them uncomfortable you will see body language and tension so you'll see you know, them hold their breath or their nostrils flare or eyes become tense, not you know pinched, uh, or they'll elevate their head. And then obviously they'll use flight, fight and freeze to put space between you. So with a wild horse at Liberty, we try and work in a larger space so that if they want to, they can take flight and get away from us. Uh, and obviously our intention is to train them in a way that they never feel the need, that they are unsafe, that they need to go into a survival instinct. And this mare was different. She didn't give me any body language indications that she was fearful. She would go from completely relaxed saying, yeah, 100%, I'm confident you can come near me. And then suddenly she would go mad. And from my experience over the last year, I really wasn't missing any pre-indicators of tension. And she hadn't communicated that she was uncomfortable. She was just fine and then mad. And... This was straight straight away, right from the first day in the yards, and by about day three, I started realizing that in the moment before she went mad, I was feeling like a buzzing in my hands and What was happening is that the energy fields are like sort of like an invisible force field around them, and I was crossing through and so she was emitting a warning that they do for predators to ward them off, and I was crossing through that sort of boundary that she'd set uh, and then would let me know that it was unacceptable. (laughs) And so over the next few days, I started experimenting and every time I felt the buzzing in my hand, I'd pause and back off. And within 10 minutes of this first interaction using this timing, I could walk right up to her and touch her for the first time. And because every time I'd respect the boundary, back away, wait for her to relax, walk back in, and every time she'd let me a little bit closer until eventually the buzzing was just a few centimetres off her skin and then on the next attempt there was no buzz and I could rub her on the shoulder.
0: Had you ever experienced something similar, like with the hands and just not noticed before, or was it like a completely new experience? Or could you kind of rewind and think, well, I have felt this before, I just didn't understand it?
1: Uh, No, it was a completely new experience. But then as soon as I was aware of it, I was feeling it off all of the wild horses and then a few times from domesticated horses. since.
0: That's really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's just, just so interesting. I mean, you know, we've spent decades with horses and there are still so much to discover.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the last year has just been unprecedented learning. There's just been so much that stemmed from that and that's made working with the 12 horses this year so much smoother and then they've continued to teach me so much. So it's just been one fascinating case study after another.
0: One of the things that I really like about the works that the work that I've seen you and Amanda do is, you know, the fact that you keep the adrenaline in the horse very low. So that's one thing I really paid attention to because a lot of trainers will kind of get it up high first and allow them to have a flight mode and really kind of work with them being flight animals. And then when they're exhausted, they start to try to communicate with them. But what I really like with you guys is that not only do you have very good timing with your breaks, uh, but you also, I think, have longer breaks than a lot of other trainers I've seen. You know, they would go for the yawn and the licking and chewing, and then we go, okay, let's let's move along. But I kind of see that you guys, no, you, you stay, and you wait for that, you know, the extra signs of now it's really okay to move forward.
1: So, that really subtle timing has definitely developed from our time living out with wild horses because, obviously, and especially in some of these countries where they're really flighty, so the desert of Australia, the rocky, uh, the burnt forest, and the chill of British Columbia, uh, and then right out in the bog and marshlands and the rocky mountains of Canada as well. We've got horses that really their comfort zone is about a kilometre away and that's too far to get a photo for a book so we've essentially been practicing our timing because I need to be able to get between sort of one to two hundred metres away from these horses to be able to photograph them for my book and so practicing that timing and you can't make a mistake in the wild if you want that photo because you know they've got millions of acres to run away from you and so the goal is if it takes me half a day or a day, I don't want to leave that van until I've got a usable photo for the book. So I can't overwhelm them. I can't get my timing wrong because they will just scatter and take that flight response. Um, and it's another thing where the horses really hold you accountable and you can't make mistakes. Because if you're in the round pen and you make a mistake, the horse can only run as far as the round pen fence. But, you know, in the wild, if you make a mistake, they're gone and you've lost your opportunity. Uh, so you know, just waiting for the one or two of the signs of relaxation or putting them into such a heightened tension state, you've already lost them. So we work a lot on, you know, uh, fostering a mindset with the horses, you know, that is focused on relaxation because a relaxed horse can not only be trained in the thinking side of its brain, but it can retain the information so much, faster and it really cements what it learns so you can teach it something in 10 minutes that it will then know for life where if you have a horse that has been put into a state of tension it's not only more likely to give you the wrong answers but it's also less likely to retain the information and so you'll come in day after day and feel like you're teaching it the same thing
0: so when you talk about the comfort zone being a kilometer yeah um how do you then approach them in a way that doesn't scare them off
1: Uh, So with the wild horses, so I'll tell you a story about um, a situation in the Burnt Forest in the Chilcotin in British Columbia, Canada. And we'd been driving along and we found a waterhole with four bachelor stallions. And so we pulled up the car and hopped out. And in the moment they saw us, they snorted and bolted away and obviously we couldn't be not scary because we were opening doors and hopping out of the car and we're like oh no we've lost them you know that's that's the moment gone and they actually only ran for 100 meters and then they stopped and turned and faced us and were snorting and trumpeting and pacing backwards and forwards and it was really interesting because they were extremely tense and normally with a horse that's that tense they would Bolt away and they'd continue taking the flight response. And we were standing there confused, like, why aren't these horses running? They are terrified of us. And they kept trumpeting and snorting. And in the next three minutes, it was the most phenomenal experience, probably from my two years traveling. And 47 horses galloped into the valley and surrounded them. And so they actually, the bachelors had been sending out a warning. And I'd only ever heard of it happening one other time in Mongolia when they were under a wolf attack. But the bands were actually coming together to support each other in times of danger. And so over the two days that we tracked this band, we actually identified that it was eight family units and they were, you know, working together cohesively. And then when they felt safe, they would scatter and graze separately. But if, you know, they felt threatened, they would come back together again. And um, and the reason their buffer was so big, so when I'm working with a wild band, normally I only have to read the body language of two horses. So there might be 20 in the band or 10 or three. And if you can read the body language of the lead mare and the stallion, you're fine because the other horses will mirror the body language of those. So if I'm approaching and I see the lead mare or the stallion become tense, then I would need to pause and retreat, wait for them to recover, show signs of relaxation once they're relaxed, you can reapproach until those pre-indicators come up of tension. And we're talking about pre-indicators. We're looking for elevated head, sides heaving, nostrils flaring. Because if you miss the pre-indicator, they've already left. So, uh, and the reason it was so hard in um, in Canada is because obviously there's 16 horses that I had to watch the body language of, but there was eight bands, so there were eight lead mares and eight stallions. And that's why that distance was so great. Um, so that experience, I think I was travelling with, I don't know, four of us travelling and filming and photographing. And so in the end, I just left everyone behind and it was just me. And very slowly I could work with them. And with four of us, the buffer was about a kilometre. When it was just me, I could kind of get within 500 metres of them. But I never got closer with that particular group um and but it is it's the approach retreat really looking for fine attention to detail in the body language and just keeping them relaxed the entire time and not waiting for tension waiting for those really early pre-indicators of tension so uh the best way that i could describe that uh on this trip actually i kind of had the realization and um I was in America to photograph the prior mountain Mustangs and then the white mountain Mustangs in Wyoming. And I stayed with a veteran soldier from the, you know, American army and he was an advisor to the special forces. And not only was he, you know, well, he, he was an FBI agent and then he'd been rec- recruited by The army to retrain the soldiers using the combat hunter training program. And so, that uh, sort of the old fashioned style in the military, I mean, to say we're in Afghanistan or somewhere, and a bomb goes off. And then they're trying to figure out who put the bomb there, why was it there, who set it. So, they're dealing with the aftermath of the bomb exploding. And so, now they're using like profiling from serial killers and uh, sort of tracking situations that the FBI can teach them through the Hunter, uh, the Combat Hunter program, where they are looking for changes for abnormalities to be like, there could be a bomb, and to anticipate where the bomb is and why that a bomb is going to go off. And so that they're left of bang and able to anticipate the explosion before it happens. And so it's the same concept with my horse training. I'm not waiting for the explosion to go off. I'm not waiting for the horse to bite me or kick me or feel the need to attack me or to run away from me. I'm looking for the pre-indicators and the abnormalities so that before that situation arises, I can already de-escalate it.
0: It's so nice to hear you talk about, you know, being like, we, we, we like to say that we are the intelligent part of the, you know, the equipage uh, and when you're talking about that this, this is the intelligent way of dealing with horses that you actually are able to read them in advance and not be, you know, reactive after something has happened with them.
1: Yeah. And it happened, the carries is right through domesticated horses. We have a lot of, you know, we do a lot of coaching and we have a lot of, you know, nervous riders and they're like, you know, my horse bucked me off out of the blue. And it's like, it actually just never happens out of the blue. There's all always the pre-indicators. And so um you know a classic example is that I often have friends that can ride but not you know they're not great riders and I'll say I'll say to my sister Amanda like Amanda do you have a quiet horse that they can borrow because we want to go around the farm and she'll be like yeah yeah this one's perfect take him and then we'll get halfway around the farm and her horse will buck them off and I'll come back and be like how'd the ride go and I said well they got bucked off and she's like what that horse has never bucked in its life and it'll be because the can cantering up the hill and they kind of toss their head a little bit. And then if she's on them, she'll just half out, and then the horse will settle and carry on perfectly. So the horse is always perfect. Um, but they didn't notice the head toss. And then they didn't notice that they, you know, got a bit playful and then they're like, they've missed the one minute of pre indicators and suddenly, you know, it becomes something bigger. And so I think that's a lot of issues with domesticated horses where people are missing the body language. And so they're actually putting themselves in unsafe situations by default because they're not able to read and anticipate what's going to happen before it happens.
0: I actually discussed this with uh, an Icelandic trainer where he said, uh, and actually quite a few of the people I've talked to say that uh, one of the challenges is that when the old horse masters who use the horse, you know, for real work in Norway, we don't really do that anymore. You don't use the horse for real work. It's just, you know, uh, something you do for a hobby. But between the, the old horse guys and the new girls just dealing with the horses, there is a gap where the information has really been transferred. So they don't really learn to read the horses, to just learn to ride and, and, you know, groom them. So, so they, they are totally blind to not only the indicators, but, but to a lot of the stuff going on with the horses all the time.
1: I had a really fascinating conversation with a First Nation tribe in Canada. And they historically were the most famous horse First Nation culture. And um, they said in the 1970s, they were completely isolated. They lived in the valley. It was all, you know, everything was with the horses. They had the wild horses and relied heavily on horses. And then in 1970, roads were put through into their valley and they got introduced to motor vehicles and motorbikes and cars. And over the next 50 years, they completely lost their horse culture and so now the the latest chief is trying to rebuild that horse cake, horse culture but he said there's just missing a whole generation of knowledge and they're actually like having to start from scratch because it's just completely been lost
0: i think it goes with a lot of the horse world that, that there are some really big pieces missing about how horses you know their psychology and and how they how they operate and their instincts and you know just what a horse is
1: yeah and I think I've been very fortunate that the horses seem intent on teaching me some of these things um so just in the latest muster I had a foal that one of my clients was working with and you know she's tamed a wild horse in the past with me and done very well with it and so I didn't really want to step in because it was younger than she was used to and she's very competent. and from watching her, her body and her timing and everything was right and but you know she'd get to about within a meter of the foal and it was relaxed but every time she tried to go closer it would evade her so it would either back away or it would side pass or it would just constantly kind of keep her at that one meter mark and after about three days I mean we're about 10 days taming, but she's only had about three days at this point where she's been stuck at like the one meter mark and I said I'm gonna to have to like jump in and try and get her out of this because it's actually becoming a bit of a bad habit and I hadn't wanted to work with her horse because she's so successfully trained a horse in the past. And anyway, I jumped in the yard and I walked straight up to the foal and was you know, on the head and the neck. And I didn't touch it because I didn't want to ruin her first touch, but I was a few centimeters off its skin on every side. And, um, and it ended up being that it was the person was unconsciously using vibration, vibrational communications to buzz the horse off her and so uh, from default over the last year and from case studies and uh, what we've been working with I've discovered that the buzzing is because of a weakened or collapsed energy field so I restored the energy field of the girl and straight away she could get those touches with her horse and my energy field was fine so I could go straight in and do it you know straight away um, so you know just some really fascinating things like that that their horses are there and they're telling us, but we're just misinterpreting it as the horse being difficult or sore or angry, or, you know, it's just not my horse, but actually, you know, sometimes it actually is that human and horse dynamic at a much deeper level than most people appreciate.
0: This is, I'm just thinking, this is something that people really need to know. Uh, So how to go, how to, I mean, you guys are doing your best, but I'm always thinking how to go about to kind of, You know, really change the way people look at horses and understand horses in, like, you know, like a grand scale. How to really try to replace the bits and pieces that we lost along the way, in the, you know, the most effective way somehow. I mean, I'm really kind of because my um, my challenge is that sometimes when I describe what I see and understand with horses, people can't even see it, even though it's there in plain sight. And you think, how, how? How am I going to explain this if you can't really even see see what I'm talking about when I'm pointing out? It's like this, and this happens, and they they can't see it. It's like
1: yeah, and yeah, and I would have said I was one of those people, but yeah, me too. (laughs) But when you've got twelve wild horses in the yard, and we just can't work with them, and you know, I mean, I've tamed horses for years, but I swear these twelve horses this year, all all they wanted us to learn (laughs) was these these lessons. And some days we couldn't get near them. And then in the moment, I'd fix the energy field and suddenly you could touch them. And they'd never been touched before. And 20 minutes later, you can touch down to all four feet. Or, you know, I could do something, but the owner couldn't. And then we worked with the owner and then she can do everything. Um, But the before and afters, and I think you almost have to be there witnessing it because the before and afters are undeniable. So you can't deny that it wasn't possible. And we really tried multiple things. Because this was, an ex- this was like we were stumbling across the knowledge in these last six weeks from these horses teaching it to us. And then it became a case study of like 12 hours a day, you know, all day long. It was like this horse couldn't do something and then would work on it and then it could. Um, and it's actually not, it wasn't the technical training issue. It wasn't the body language or the timing of the human. A lot of the time it was coming down to the energy fields. And they were becoming, they collapse when they're stressed. And obviously, they're in an environment where they've gone from running wild to being helicopter mustard to being stock truck to being yarded. Um, and that's why, you know, really, really ethical, quiet training process is so important. Like, I had a stallion that's just arrived a week ago, and he actually is a wild. I mean, he's wild, but he was born in domestication from a wild mare and no one's been able to tame him. And so he's a rising five-year-old now. And he got sent to me on a stock truck and I was going to film him as a case study and I'm standing there talking about him and introducing him and he walks up behind me and, you know, has a go at me. And this is with no interaction from me. I'm just ignoring him while I'm talking to the camera. And I just held up my hands and he like backed off and respected that boundary and then wandered back to the yard fence again but you know a lot of people said you know why didn't you you know chase that horse around in that moment why didn't you tell him off why didn't you put him in his place and I said because horses just don't act that way you know it's not a typical behavioral wild horse and that's why that uh, left of bang book it's a book which is about the uh, combat hunter program is so important because it talks about how if the fact that you need to establish a baseline And so from my experience working over 100 wild horses now and from, you know, those months in the mountains, I understand a baseline of what horse's authentic language universally is. And I also have a baseline for how horses react in a taming process. So for this stallion to be doing what he's doing is outside of that baseline. And so if it's not his authentic behavior, then normally it's caused by trauma or pain, or multiple things. So uh, for this horse, it's definitely trauma. And so if he's already traumatized by people and the idea of people, then beating him up in that moment is just going to compound the trauma and create a bigger issue. So not only does he fear human as a general, he will then fear me as well. And so instead, I look at him and I say, okay, well, I've triggered him. And me being here has obviously made him mad. And so then I moved to restore his energy fields. There was a huge, massive before and after straight away. Uh, And then since then, I've worked a lot on emotional release therapy and working through layers of, you know, that sort of human horse trauma that he's gone through. And, I mean, yesterday I couldn't work with him at all. Every time I'd go into his yard, he'd just stand there yawning and yawning and licking and chewing and yawning and processing and so there was just so much going on emotionally that he wasn't ready to work. So after the third time I was like, okay, no, he can have a day off Um, just because rather than me entering the yard being a trigger for him to attack, it was a trigger for him to process and become relaxed. Um, So it's, you know, it's fascinating but a lot of what we're working with the horses, I mean, Amanda specialises in human trauma she's doing a nationwide tour at the moment focusing on human trauma and how to overcome fears and emotional triggers and a lot of what she's learned by default uh, I, I, I'm been, I've been applying to the wild horses for you know about four years now
0: so how to replace the school of you know having because in Norway we don't really have those horses there are no feral horses in Norway it doesn't exist
1: yeah you do get away with a lot with domestic horses. Yeah.
0: So I'm just thinking, you know, if you live in a country like I do where you don't really have those horses, you know, what would, be, what would be your best suggestion to kind of start experimenting or, you know, start a journey of, of uh, learning this kind of language with horses? Because uh, with feral horses, like you say, it's, you don't really have to think, did I do it right or wrong? Because if you did it wrong, the horse is gone. So it's very easy to know, but, you know, how to, and also with domesticated horses, if they have, if they're already shut down uh, and all the, you know, it's, I just, sometimes I think, you know, I've I've been doing this podcast now for a bit more than two years. And I'm thinking, you know, where to, where to start to, to help people kind of see what we're talking about. I, I, yeah.
1: So I've got, I mean, with my workshop next year, I've had inquiries from UK, like all over the world for people wanting to come and work with wild horses and go through my workshop here. And I think it's at the point where there's such a global need for it. I'm going to have to film an entire workshop, the whole four weeks, every day, all 12 horses, every session and do an online resource because there's actually nowhere... I mean, you actually just can't learn it for full stop. You can't learn it from one horse because if you're only working with one horse, you can't understand a baseline. So if you can't understand a baseline, you're learning training techniques and skills to cater to perhaps your one horse. But when you're working with, you know, 30 horses a year like I am or, you know, know, a lot in a very short time period, you're able to be like, okay, this is the baseline. This horse is beyond the baseline. What do we need to do and brainstorm to figure out how to, you know, get them back to an equilibrium. Um, And it actually is a numbers game. You know, they say it takes 10 years or 10,000 hours to become a master in, you know, any, any industry or, you know, in any skill. And it's so true. Like I look at my training from 2012 when I first worked with the wild horses till 2018 and I tamed you know kind of 11-ish in 2012 and then a few in 2000 and uh, you know sort of each year and my improvement as a trainer was just minuscule it was like I got a little bit better a little bit better a little bit better and then in 2018 I trained 26 horses and if most people train one horse a year I got 26 years worth of training in that six-month period So if you look at it that way, it actually, it's a numbers game. You've just got to put the hours in. And with domesticated horses, I think it's really important to understand that domesticated horses are like working with a totally different species, but fundamentally at their core, they have the capability of communicating authentically like a wild horse. It's just been so desensitized and just so shut down. And so, now with my horses and my domesticated horses, I treat them like a wild horse and I I actually foster them to be able to communicate and use their body language again. Um, and the ones I've bred are, are generally fine, but if we buy in, if we purchase a horse or if we, you know, rescue a horse, they've lost that authentic ability to communicate. And it actually can be relearned, but it comes from a lot of consistency from the you know, from the handler, it comes from really correct, clear uh, body language from us. Because if we're confusing for the horse, then they switch us off. Because if they're, uh, you know, if if you're inconsistent and confusing, they're like, okay, I just got to dull myself down because this human makes no sense anyway. So it's just all white noise. But if you're really precise and clear, then they can be like, okay, she just asked me a question, I can answer it. But if you're a- unconsciously asking them questions and hassling them all
0: the time, then they actually just tune you out. Wow, this has just been. I knew it would be interesting to talk to you, but uh, I have to say, you added a few layers here that I really appreciate. That's so good. And please do make the video you're talking about because I, to be honest, I really need to point somebody into the right direction. And I don't really have many places to point them i gained experience with horses and and it's not wild or feral horses but icelandic horses uh and you know they've lived with their mother and the herd for the first five years and haven't been handled much so i think it's the closest you get in my country you know because i've i've just i just seen glimpse of it in my horse because he is he's the he is the domesticated horse but he was not handled much when he came and he was handled in a very good way. I think the breeder did a very good job with him, not you know being all over him and desensitizing and doing all that stuff, but just allowing him to be a horse. And he's, he's taught me so many things, but it's, I think, when you haven't really met a horse that's been raised in a herd uh, even, you know, it's, it's just such a stretch to really understand what horses are, deep down.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think, like, I don't think I understood what horses are deep down until I spent time with them in the wild. And then I realized that this is actually their capability. And then how do we foster that in in what we're doing with them in domestication?
0: I, I think you kind of answered all the questions I had, plus some. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, if you have anything that you need to add, uh, add or want to kind of feel that we're we're missing, just let me know. But I'm I'm like this is really just such a good starting point for people because I just want them to be curious, more curious about their horses.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the biggest thing. Like you got you've got to be open minded and you have to be willing to question it because domesticated horses and show jumpers they all have a baseline too. So. If a horse wakes up one morning and is misbehaving, they don't actually, I mean, generally, they're just never bad on purpose. It's not in a horse's nature. So if they've gone from being amazing to the next day not, then it's not been like, okay, gosh, I've got to work this horse through it and get a positive answer. It's actually like, no, let's go back to the drawing board and let's brainstorm. Like, is it sore? Is it grass affected, which, you know, can happen overnight? Is it ulcers? which again, the signs can be overnight. I had a, a wild Kaimanawa, I mean, from every muster, but from this muster in particular. And it was a young yearling and the owner loved it and it was so cute and friendly and it, and it was. She'd done a great job with it and she could you know, handle him. He was doing obstacles and halted and leading. And he just had the most amazing bond with her. And we always used to joke uh, that, if he could choose between all of the other wild horses in the paddock and her, he'd like choose her. Cause he just really genuinely had affection for her. And then the next day she went out to work with him and he was just trying to savage her. <laughs> and she was so distraught. And, you know, she's like, he hates me. Like I can't get near him. And, you know, we kind of went through all the obvious things. And so we checked his energy field and we checked her energy field and, uh, you know, and then, And then we tried a butte trial. So we do a painkiller trial to see if it's pain related. And with a wild horse, generally, if they go from really good to really bad overnight, it's and it's about that two to four week mark since a major uh, life event, uh, it's normally ulcers. And so, you know, sure enough, five days into ulcer treatment, her horse is like perfection. Uh, but she was distraught because she really thought that, and she's like, I'm too, I can't, I'm going to have to stay on. I can't leave the workshop because this horse is just like, I can't even catch him. I can't touch him. He's just so, you know, he hates me. And I said, no, no, trust me. I always have at least one or two horses every year. And this happens. But if you don't understand that that's not the baseline and you just think that this horse has gone savage and you've made a mistake, it will stay savage for a year or two because ulcers just don't self-heal generally and he'll learn to tolerate touch again and stuff and he'll just pain will be his normal but actually if you like that that's the baseline I know this horse is nice it doesn't normally act like this uh, then you can correct it and so yeah five days into ulcer treatment is perfect again and uh, we had another one about and probably about three days later the girl was picking up all four feet already It had his he done by the dentist had already been on horse trucks and floats and been off the property for adventures and he started trying to bite her when she tried to touch him to pick up his legs and she's like oh did I scare him that day that I picked up his legs like have I given him trauma and is he like and I said no it'll be ulcers I've had one exactly the same it was fine to touch on his body but the legs it was really bad and again like five days into ulcer treatment he's just perfection again um, but, you know, I think a whole lot of horses are misrepresented as being naughty and difficult uh, or aggressive when actually there's a whole lot of horses that are just in pain. And sadly, so often the cause of their pain is actually just the person as well. Um, so, you know, if you have a horse that's bad on the saddle, sure, the saddle might not fit. It might have skeletal issues. It might have, you know, other issues going on. But sometimes the rider with ha- hard hands or a heavy seat is enough of a pain for the horse to
0: not want to be ridden. Then they just suffer in silence often.
1: Yeah. And then eventually they can't suffer in silence. So Amanda, uh, about three years ago, she had one of the top, top show jumping riders in New Zealand and they were sitting around, you know, in the evening socializing. And he was complaining about one of his good show jumpers and it show jumped to a meter 30 and had had lots of success. And he was, just it's just useless like it won't even you know it's not jumping it's refusing if I try and get it to go into the arena it just rears and I have to have people chase it through the gateway and he's just said I'm just so sick of it and Amanda said well if you want to give it away I'll have it and I think he had a little bit too much to drink and he agreed to it so he went and got the horse and put it in her yards and Amanda took it home and it like you know this is a $50,000 horse um, six months earlier when it was performing well and now it's not jumping anything And so Amanda just went through everything because obviously, you know, the baseline is that it show jumps at a metre 30 at top level with huge success. And so she went home, she brainstormed, she did body checks, she checked everything and it failed a spine check. And so she booked it in to get x-rays and sure enough, it had a kissing spine and the vertebrae were rubbing bone on bone. And it was so bad. I think there were six, six bones that were compromised and two had actually fused. And she rang up the owners and she said, hey, like actually the horse, the, the vets have said we need to euthanize it because it's actually in so much pain and it's not fixable at this point. And the guy goes, oh, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. Six, years ago, uh, six months ago, um, just before it started going badly, it got a fright in a storm and bolted through six fences and did a rotational flip. And, you know, so the signs were there. And if six months ago he had arrested the horse, it probably would have recovered and gone on to be rideable. But because he just assumed the horse suddenly went naughty, it was too late at that point to fix it. So, yeah, there's just a lot that is misinterpreted, I think, in, in horses, which is quite tragic.
0: See, I'm, I'm really glad you guys are on it, to be honest. Yeah.
1: It's a massive learning experience, but we're loving the lessons they're teaching us.
0: Uh, Kelly, um, thank you ever so much for your time. I, I do have a signature question for this podcast. Uh, yeah. What have you learned about horses that you think it's very important that everybody who deals with horses should know? But somehow I feel that the whole interview <laughs> has been one, yeah. you know, continuous as you know, answer of that question. But still, yeah, I you think know, um,
1: everything we've said so far, I mean, is fundamental, like treating them for ulcers, checking them for pain working on the energy fields, your horsemanship, your body, your language, your timing. I mean, they're all equally as important. And one thing doesn't work with the, the other. So it really is a holistic approach to every aspect. Um, but uh, by another thing that I do with horses, which I've had a huge success with, is emotional release therapy. Um, and that's been a big game changer for several horses. So I had one... Uh, Mustang in America and she's actually the horse that I tamed for the extreme Mustang makeover and she was by far the I mean she's still one of my favorites and by far the best wild horse I'd ever worked with and in a hundred days was so safe that like my mum could ride her through Yellowstone and she's just awesome and then at the competition she got second in the handling and conditioning class and I could crawl under her legs while I was picking up her feet and uh, she got sixth overall and sold for the highest priced horse of the auction. And the last day I rode her in America, I just cantered her bareback, you know, across the fields and she was just so safe in a halter. And anyway, she sold to an amazing family. They really had good intentions with the horses. And, um, and they, they rang me a few times to say that they're having real problems with her feet with her hooves and I couldn't understand it because she had been so perfect you could shoe her you could trim her like you could just put a lead rope on the ground and she'd ground tie and you could go pick up all four feet while you crawled under a belly. you know I've got videos of her doing it in the Mustang makeover competition and 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 in the four years they had her they'd never been able to ride her they'd sent her away to horse two horse trainers to re-brake under saddle and she'd bronked both of them off and no one had been able to sit on her and so I think, I think the sort of, and the sort of, I think they thought maybe she was just my horse, you know, like she was a wild horse and she just had a magical bond with me and no one else could do anything with her. Um, and so anyway, I flew over there to help them with her. And the first day I took 45 minutes before I could get close enough for her to sniff my hand. And at this point they were only trimming her hooves once every six months because she had to be stated and the vets hated working with her um and and anyway I I, I was working with her and I mean it was just it was really heartbreaking it took two hours because I do when I'm working with them and I'm working on first touches or if I'm working with a traumatized horse to retrain them to be touched I just run my hands along until I hit a point of a pre-indicator of tension and then you know either take my hand off and wait for them to recover or uh, you know, looking do when you are one. And it's sort of, it's a very gradual process. And so it took me two hours to touch from her neck down to the hoof on one side and for her to allow that to happen in a relaxed manner because she was so tense about it and I um and I said you know like I'm on my way to Canada I I can't stay longer but I'll cut my Canada trip short by a week and I'll come back and I'll work with her again and so that's the only experience and the only work I could do with her was just that one session and so while I was gone I did a lot of emotional release therapy with her remotely and she also had no work where she was because the owners had gone away for the time the two weeks he he was away to work conference uh and so she was just in the panic and so anyway I came back from Canada and the only interaction she had no interaction with humans just this emotional release therapy and I started working with her and straight away catch her a halter picked up all four feet and, I, and then I jumped on a beer back and took her for a ride through the forest and she was perfection exactly the horse I remembered and I said you know, like. Let's. I mean, I'll go to town and I'll buy the fairy again. I'll just trim her feet myself, <laughs> and they'll out there. That'd be awesome. So anyway, we drove to town and I bought all the fairy supplies, and then she just rested her foot in the hoof stand, and I just went around and trimmed all four feet like a little schoolmistress. Uh, and that really is the only difference between me leaving and me arriving back. And right from that first session, she was amazing. Um, and I've had a lot of other case studies since where it's been like a really fundamental difference. Like one mare here that has been just so head shy. She's one of my wild horses and she's the best wild horse I'd ever trained. Uh, within four weeks at Liberty, she would cross obstacles, pick up all four feet. I mean, she could do anything. And um, and then she was so good after six weeks that I turned her out in a 15 acre paddock and she had a year off to, you know, because she was pregnant. And in that 15-acre paddock, I could just walk up any time, catch her, and she was perfect. And then uh, about nine months ago, she looked like she was close to foaling. So I walked up to the back of the farm, caught her again in the same 15-acre paddock, led her back down the hill. And she had the foal, and I could never get near her again. I couldn't catch her. If I could catch her, I'd kind of have to corner her a little bit. And I could catch her, but she's so head shy that I could barely get the halter on her. And um, and I actually said several times, like she she wants to be friendly. Like she will come straight up to me as soon as she sees me. She neighs and she trots over, and she'll stand like a meter away from you. And then I just can't get my hands on her. And if I can get my hands on her, it's on her neck. But she won't let me near her head. And so we've had her teeth done. There were no issues and she had it done previously. So I didn't think there would be issues, but I was just going through that kind of process of elimination because her baseline is that she is just the sweetest, easiest horse. And, you know, and then it was like skeletal issues. Does she have anything wrong physically and couldn't find anything major uh, energy fields? We had restored them. It would help a little bit, but not enough to make her easy. And then I did the emotional release therapy on foaling because she never liked her foal. And the day that she went bad, the handle was the day she had her foal. And I just joked, you know, I used to say, like, you know, she just went wild when she had a foal again, like all her natural instincts came back. Um, but actually, I did emotional release therapy about what she thought about foaling and what she thought about her foal and, you know, that whole time period. And the next day I could just walk up, scratch her on the head, halt her like a normal horse again. And she would, like, walk up to strangers that she doesn't even know and she use them as a scratching post and rub her head all over them. And, like, literally three days before she'd been so head shy we couldn't even get near her. Um, So just, yeah, some really, um, like, amazing case studies on that regard too that's been making a massive difference.
0: I would really appreciate if you have some references for this kind of work so it's possible for me to recommend it.
1: Yep. So I use. I use the emotion code. So it's available as a book. So it's got a Ford by Tony Robbins. It's used, it was created, it was developed by a chiropractor in America uh, for use on humans. And uh, he also, you know, reference, he's a horse rider himself. And he also references some case studies that he's done with horses. And so in 2018, I had a stallion that cried and I know like technically horses can't cry, but I'd be working with him and he'd just have tears rolling down his face. And so I put a photo on Facebook of, of the tear of his eyes. And you can just see like there's just so much anguish and pain. And there's just a tear rolling down out of the, his eye socket. And um, and someone commented, like, you should see if this lady can help you with him. And it was a lady that worked with um with zoo animals and lots of elephants, and does this work with the zoo animals. And so I contacted her, and she did some work with him. And straight away there was an improvement. And then four months later, he stalled in his training. And so I got her to work with him again, and there was more improvement. Uh, and and he actually did get to the point where he was able to be started under saddle and went from being like the most challenging horse I've ever worked with uh, to being quite trainable. So uh, yeah, the emotion code. And then there's also a documentary called Emotion. Uh, which is available on Gaia and there's some abstract stuff in it, but it does talk about the science of how emotions can get trapped in the body. And again, that's about people, but the same philosophy.
0: So I can't tell, but wonder, you know, when you work with these semi wild horses, they, you know, well, when they feel pain and when they feel scared, it's so much easier to read when, and then when you work with domestic horses, so I'm just thinking about yeah. all the issues that, you know, I, I can see them as well, but all the issues that domesticated horses have that are not really addressed by anyone.
1: Yeah. So with my stallion from this year's muster, every single day, if I have a training session where he becomes tense or he was worried about something straight away, I'll go release any trapped emotions that he incurred during the session. Uh, and then the next day he'll just come back beautifully. Um, so that's been massive. So yeah, a big game changer for the wild horses this year was a lot of emotional release therapy and constantly restoring energy fields of both the horses and their handlers.
0: Thank you ever so much for this uh, interview, Kelly. It's been so interesting. <laughs> You're so welcome. It's been fun. <laughs> and take care of yourself, uh, your sisters, your horses and everything. I will. Thank you. And I really hope to speak to you again. It's, uh, it was just so interesting.
1: Yeah, I would love to. Uh, the horses have taught me so much in just the last year, especially the last six weeks that I imagine a year or two from now, it will be even even more.
0: You have just heard episode 21 from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. I want to thank my composer, Frederick Blom, my guest, Kelly Wilson. And last but not least, I want to thank you, dear listener, for your patience. May the horse be forever with you.